Cry Most Queer is an LGBTQ true crime podcast intended for adult audiences and may contain graphic or disturbing content, including detailed descriptions of violence, physical or sexual assault, injuries to victims, and foul language. If you feel this may trigger you at all, please reconsider listening. Welcome to A Crime Most Queer. I'm NJ Hawkby. First things first, thank you for understanding my need to take some time off to deal with my father's stroke. And for all the messages of support that I received, both in the comments on Facebook and privately. It was greatly appreciated. My father is now in a rehab facility in Cape Town getting the care that he needs, and we're hopeful that he'll be back on his feet soon. So, again, thank you so much. But enough about my personal life. Let's get into the good shit. I heard about today's case a while back, but I didn't look too deeply into it because it is a serial killer case and I didn't feel at the time that I had the fortitude to deal with that much murder and mayhem that usually goes with this kind of case. However, before I took my break, I decided to give it a bash. And that was when I discovered that a movie had been released on this case back in 2009. So I figured, as part of my research, I'd give it a watch. (laughs) Now, okay, I don't expect any gratitude for putting out ACMQ. I do get tokens of appreciation in the form of donations through Buy Me A Coffee. Uh, And on the topic of, I want to give a quick shout out to Kelvin Nickerson, Melissa, Pelesa, and the two people who chose to remain anonymous, so I won't mention your names here, but I know who you are, for buying me a whole bunch of coffees. Thank you so much. But let's get back to not expecting gratitude. I finished that movie, eventually. Purely so you didn't have to. So if you're wanting to thank me for something, that would be the thing. It claimed to be a horror film based on a true story. And while the second part is totally accurate, it definitely was based on a true story from the mid-80s. The first part was also true, but not for the reasons I think the filmmakers intended. I can sum it up in five words. My fuck, it was bad. Yeah, it was a horror. But only insofar as it was horrific. The acting was shit, the script was shit, the film work was shit, with jarring camera angles that were just weird and not in a good way. So, yeah... It was just all-round shit. If I'm honest, the 3.7 star rating it has on IMDb is seriously fucking generous, and yet the critic reviews were glowing. I was reading them the whole time thinking, did you actually watch the same movie I suffered through? But be that as it may, it stuck to the facts fairly closely. That's about the only positive thing I can say about it. So I'm going to take a stab at the story. Hopefully, I can do a better job. But yeah, again, And now that my rant's over, thank you for the coffees. If you want to buy me one too, there's a link in the description. Also, don't forget to subscribe and do please leave us a review. Now let's dive in. But before we do, this is your one fuck around and find out warning. This episode gets seriously graphic and I'm not holding back. So if descriptions of sadism and torture are an issue for you, give this one a skip altogether. You're not going to cope. Okay, now... Let's dive in. Prologue. Call the police. 
April in middle America isn't particularly warm, but summer is noticeably on the way. At 13 degrees Celsius or 55 degrees Fahrenheit, there was still a decided nip in the air. But it wasn't unbearable. However, at that temperature, the last thing you would expect to see hurriedly hobbling towards you is a young man in his early 20s, completely naked, save for a dog collar around his neck. But this is precisely the sight that greeted the astonished parking meter attendant working along Charlotte Street that day, April the 2nd, 1988. The naked man's name was Christopher Bryson, and as he stumbled towards the traffic warden, he kept hollering as much as that was possible, the same thing over and over in a hoarse, raspy voice. Call the police! Call the police! The officer ran over to him, stripping off her jacket to wrap around the man's waist to provide him with at least a modicum of decency, and then helped him to a nearby house. The occupants of the house were equally astonished by the sight on their front porch, and they hustled the two people inside. Christopher just kept on repeating, Call the police! Which they duly did. Minutes later, police officers arrived at the house, and Christopher finally allowed himself to embrace the faint glimmer of hope that the worst of his ordeal was finally over, and he began to tell his story. A story that was truly fucking bonkers. Four days earlier, he told them, he had been hitchhiking, and was picked up by a man in his late thirties. That chance encounter led to Christopher being held captive. For much of those four days, he had been bound to a bed on the middle floor of an unassuming three-story home, during which his kidnapper had drugged, raped, and tortured him including injecting drain cleaner into his throat to inhibit his ability to speak, hence the hoarseness of his voice. Christopher had finally gotten free while his assailant was at work, and he jumped out of the window of the room in which he had been held, breaking his foot in the process. The officers struggled to wrap their heads around what Christopher was telling them, but it was clear that the young man had been through hell. In addition to the dog collar and the broken foot, Christopher's eyes were red and puffy, and his body was covered with cuts and welts. The lead officer called it in, and he was instructed to have two officers discreetly surveil the property from whence Christopher had escaped. Meanwhile, a third officer accompanied Christopher to Menorah Medical Center for treatment, while a fourth officer secured a search warrant for 4315 Charlotte Street in the Hyde Park District of Kansas City, Missouri. Chapter 1. The Not-So-Favorite Child Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio today looks precisely like what you would probably imagine when I say the words American Midwest Town, although it's not technically a town. Taking a stroll down Front Street, the main drag of the city, with Google Street View, it doesn't take much imagination to transport oneself back to Cuyahoga Falls circa 1950. Broad streets, flanked on either side by wide sidewalks and double-story buildings with large windows, give the city of 53,000 people a definite forgotten-in-the-golden-age vibe. Nestled along the northern banks of the Cuyahoga River, with its series of waterfalls from which the city gets its name, Cuyahoga Falls is less than 10 kilometers north of Ohio's fifth-largest city, Akron, making it one of its suburbs. And this is where our story begins, back in 1949 when the city was a fair bit smaller, but no less good a place to raise a family. Robert Andrew Bedella wasn't a particularly nice man. 
The son of Italian immigrants, he was a devout Roman Catholic who worked as a die-setter for the Ford Motor Company and ruled his household with an iron fist. His wife, Mary, was your typical mid-century housewife. And on January the 31st, 1949, the couple welcomed their first son, Robert Andrew Bedella Jr., into the world. Robert Jr., who I'll refer to as Bob from here on out because there are many men named Robert in the story, was an abject disappointment to his father. He was a portly child with a speech impediment who wore thick glasses and was medicated for high blood pressure. As such, he wasn't overly interested in sports. And Robert Sr., who valued athletic ability rather highly, saw his son's lack of interest or proficiency in sport as a sign of weakness. This was only compounded when Bob's younger brother Daniel, born in 1956, when Bob was seven, displayed a knack for a variety of different sports from an early age, and it was blatantly obvious that Robert Sr. had a favourite child. Bob would often be the target of his father's ire. Robert Sr. would frequently deprecate his older son for not being more like his younger. Robert Sr. was also not above emotionally and physically abusing his sons, but Bob definitely got a disproportionate allotment of those tongue lashings and beatings with a leather strap. However, what Bob lacked in physical ability, he made up for in book smarts. He was intelligent and did well in school, but he was a bit of a loner. He rarely played outside and seldom had friends over, mainly because he didn't have much in the way of friends. He did, however, have his fair share of bullies. And for this reason, he chose to keep to himself. When he hit puberty in the early 60s, Bob realized that he was gay, but he kept that particular nugget of information well hidden, or as well hidden as he could. In later life, people would describe him as flamboyant, and it's possible that this flamboyance shone through from an early age, which may have contributed to the relentless bullying. He did try dating the opposite sex, though, and for a short while in his teens, he had a girlfriend. It was also in his teens that he became more self-confident, and with this came a rude, condescending air, especially towards women, which may have hurried along the demise of his relationship with his girlfriend. He also displayed an interest in cooking, art, and showmanship. On Christmas Day 1965, a little more than a month before his 17th birthday, Bob went to visit relatives in Canton, Ohio, 40 kilometers south of Cuyahoga Falls. However, that evening... Robert Sr. suffered a heart attack, and two days later, when Bob returned home, he was informed that his father had died. Despite the years of trauma at the hands of his father, his death affected Bob deeply. Robert Sr. was a devout Catholic, as mentioned, and the family would attend Mass every Sunday. Bob and Daniel would also often attend religious education courses at their father's bidding. As such, it was no surprise that Bob turned to his faith for comfort. This led to him researching many other faiths, but eventually Bob would become rather cynical of religion in general. His father hadn't been dead all that long when Bob's mother remarried. Bob saw this as a betrayal of his father's memory and resented his mother's new husband. He became increasingly withdrawn and poured himself into the solitary activities of his youth, namely painting, stamp and coin collecting, and writing to pen pals around the world. It was also in 1965 that he watched The Collector, a movie based on the John Fowles novel of the same name, starring Terence Stamp, who would, many years later, star as Bernadette, a trans woman in The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. This movie, The Collector, 
would have a lasting impact on Bob. If you don't know the story, it's about a young civil servant named Frederick Clegg, who collects butterflies as a hobby. One day while at work, he notices a woman walking past. It turns out she studies at the local art school, so he sees her around town fairly frequently, and over time, he develops an obsession with her, but is too shy to even approach her, let alone actually speak to her. When he comes into some money, he quits his job and buys a remote farmhouse in the country. He then kidnaps the woman and holds her captive in his cellar, in the hopes that she'll fall in love with him, if given enough time. But it is not to be. Shortly after her abduction, she gets sick and subsequently dies, despite her captor doing all he can to keep her alive. So, yeah. Fucked up shit. Full disclosure, I haven't seen the movie or read the book. But I have read the synopsis of the book, and if the movie sticks closely to the book, shit gets even more fucked up before the credits roll. Anywho, I think I can understand why this movie would have resonated with Bob. He kept to himself. Through his pen pals around the globe, he collected stamps and coins. And it isn't much of a stretch to see how he could have become the obsessive type. It may have seemed to Bob that Frederick Clegg, the main character, was just like him. And, spoiler alert, Frederick got away with his crimes, so if Bob were to try the same, he may well get away with crimes of his own. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that these deductions were in the forefront of Bob's mind, but seeds were no doubt planted. And even Bob admitted to revisiting the movie in his mind well into his adult life. But life in Cuyahoga Falls was way too pedestrian for Bob's liking, and after graduating high school, the lights and sounds of the big city called to him. Bob was the proverbial moth, and Kansas City, Missouri, his flame. Chapter 2. Bright Lights, Big Shitty It was the summer of 1967, and the big wide world lay at his feet. His high school career was at last behind him, and he enrolled in the Kansas City Art Institute, or KCAI, with plans to eventually become a college professor. Bob's freshman year at KCAI went swimmingly, and he was considered a diligent, gifted student. But by his sophomore year, or year two, the cracks began to show. He became outspokenly anti-authoritarian and began drinking heavily. In addition to this, he got involved with a less than savory crowd, who would supply him with drugs that he would then sell on to his fellow students. This led to his arrest for dealing, where he tried to sell meth to an undercover cop. He was released on $3,000 bail, the modern-day equivalent of $25,600, or almost 500,000 rand, and would later plead guilty to the charge, receiving a five-year suspended sentence for his troubles. A month later, he was arrested in Johnson County, Kansas, for possession of weed and acid, but he couldn't post bail this time and spend five days in jail, although these charges would ultimately be dropped due to a lack of evidence. But his return to KZIA wasn't exactly smooth sailing. In 1969, he started experimenting with animal torture, including drugging a dog with tranquilizers and sedatives. But it was what he did to the duck that got him hauled before college administrators. They didn't take kindly to him decapitating the fowl and cooking it as art. And as a result, he voluntarily withdrew from KCIA 
which I suspect is a nice way of saying he threw his hands in the air and screamed the hippie equivalent of, fuck this shit, I'm out. However, rather than head back to Ohio, Bob chose to stay in Kansas City, and he secured a job as a short-order cook to earn money and pay off his various lawyer's fees, and the fines that he had had levied against him following his drug conviction. He also decided to turn his childhood pastime from hobby to side gig. He began building a network of contacts in Africa, Asia, South America, and around the Pacific Rim, from whom he would acquire art and antiques that he would then sell from his home. In September 1969, Bob moved to the Hyde Park district of Kansas City, specifically 4315 Charlotte Street. By now, Bob had been openly gay for some time, and he began surrounding himself with the socially undesirable and other reprobates, like male prostitutes drug addicts, petty criminals, and runaways. He would befriend them and try to help them sort out their lives of crimes, sex work, and issues with substance dependency. Gradually, Bob's old circle of friends faded away, and his only social interactions were with the young men he said he was trying to help. But as time went on, he became increasingly incensed at their reluctance to heed his advice and correct their misguided and self-destructive ways. According to several of Bob's neighbours, he considered these individuals his foster children, and when asked, he insisted that he had no physical contact with them. At no point, according to Bob, was he at all inappropriate. But this wasn't entirely accurate. He did indeed engage sexually with these young men, and would exert a level of control over them, through a variety of methods, including loaning the money, or allowing them to stay in his home. Things seemed to go well for Bob throughout the 70s. He excelled in his career, and by 1975, he'd become a senior cook working at various well-known restaurants across Kansas City. He even joined a local chef's association, and was renowned enough to be approached to help set up a program at a local community college to train aspiring chefs. On the home front, Bob's neighbours found him a little flamboyant, but generally obliging, even if they didn't quite care for his snooty attitude and the overall unkempt conditions of his house and garden. He was also fairly civically minded. From the late 70s, he volunteered with the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighbourhood Association, even serving as its chairman from the early to mid-80s, where he actively encouraged neighbourhood watch patrols. It was also in the late 70s that Bob came to the realisation that his passion didn't actually lie in the kitchen, but rather in antiquing, and he focused a lot of his efforts on expanding his network of antiques and art dealers. By 1981, he had established a number of contacts with various dealers both nationally and abroad, and he began to regard his antiques business as his main job. Soon enough, he decided it was time to follow his passion and hung up his chef's hat for good. Bob Bedella was embarking on a new chapter in his life. But before we dive into that, let's head off into space. The human experiment has ended. The Earth has been obliterated. A plague of cholera burns through the outer colonies, and the last of the great houses drifts at the edge of the Kuiper Belt, carrying a macabre secret. The only thing standing between Twilight House and the death of all living things 
is Fort Providence Transit Station, on the dark side of Pluto's largest moon. The Ghosts of Pluto. Octoberpod presents an audio drama written by M.J. McAdams, produced, edited and directed by Edward October. Coming this February. Ghosts of Pluto, my audio drama debut, is out now on YouTube, so please do check it out. Octoberpod can be found on YouTube by searching for Octoberpod Home Video or on your podcast platform of choice at Octoberpod AM. There are links in the description. And now, let's get back to it. Chapter 3 Bob's Bizarre Bizarre. Welcome to Bob's Bizarre Bizarre, ethnological curiosities from the world's far corners. Or so it said on Bob's business card. In actuality, however, it was a stall at the Westport flea market where he sold and traded primitive art, jewellery and antiques. But a beat running the business out of his home. Some months, the stall did really well, and he made a tidy profit. But more often than not, the income that the stall generated wasn't even enough to cover the day-to-day expenses. But old Bob was living the dream, and he wasn't about to let turning a profit get in his way. Not when he could resort to stealing or scavenging items to sell down at his store. He also had a large house with plenty of rooms that he could rent out to lodgers to bring in extra bucks. In 1979, Bob met flea market seller Paul Howell, and it had been Paul who'd encouraged Bob to hire the store at Westport. They weren't bosom buddies, but they were friendly enough, and Bob also became acquainted with Paul's 14-year-old son Jerry, who would often help out his dad at the store. Jerry could be a bit of a dick sometimes as he got older, and he and his friends would often mock Bob for his obvious homosexuality. But Bob seemed to brush it off with an attitude of, kids will kid. Bob would later claim that Jerry had admitted to him in private that he and his mates would sometimes earn extra cash through male prostitution, but whether Bob utilised their services is unknown. By mid-1983, Paul had given up his store at the Westport flea market and opened up a shop in town. The shop came with an apartment on the first floor, and it was to here that the family moved. Bob remained a casual friend of the family, and Jerry would often turn to Bob for assistance when he found himself on the wrong side of the law. On July the 5th, 1984, Bob picked up Jerry Howell, now 19 years old, as arranged. He had agreed to give the young man a lift to Miriam, Kansas, as there was a dance contest the young man wanted to attend, but Bob had other plans in mind. He plied Jerry with alcohol, laced with Valium, and acepromazine, a medication formerly used as an antipsychotic, but nowadays used almost exclusively as an animal sedative and pre-anesthetic. He then drove him to 4315 Charlotte Street, where he led the lad inside and continued to feed him the intoxicating cocktail, until Jerry eventually passed out. Bob then tied him to a bed and spent the next 28 hours repeatedly drugging, torturing, raping and sodomizing him with various foreign objects. Jerry's pleas to be released and questions as to why Bob was doing this to him went largely ignored, but Bob made extensive logs of what he was doing to Jerry detailing each of the sexual or sadistic acts 
he carried out. He made a note of each time Jerry pleaded for Bob to stop and would document whether he had chosen to ignore him, taunt him, or threaten him in response. This continued right up until the moment Jerry died. In his notes, Bob logged that Jerry had, quote, either asphyxiated on his own vomit, or the combination of the gag and the medications were too strong for him to be able to catch his breath, end quote. Bob then dragged Jerry's body down to the basement, where it was suspended upside down over a large cooking pot, and exsanguinated for multiple incisions made to the jugular vein and inner elbows. The following day, with the body now drained of blood, Bob dismembered it with a chainsaw and a boning knife, wrapped the body parts in newspaper, and placed these into trash bags. These parcels were then placed into larger trash bags and put out on the curb for a garbage crew to take away to one of the city's landfills, which just goes to show you can never really know what your neighbours are tossing out on garbage day. He did, however, hang on to Jerry's wallet, a keepsake of their time together. It wasn't long before the police came knocking, asking questions about Jerry's disappearance. In the course of their investigations, they had learnt of Jerry arranging a lift to Kansas with Bob. But Bob told the police that he had last seen Jerry when he dropped him off near the dance hall that Jerry had been wanting to go to in Miriam, and that he hadn't seen the young man since. The investigators seemed to accept Bob's story and went on their way. It appeared to Bob that, just like Frederick Clegg, the main character in The Collector, he had gotten away with this crime. But he wasn't an idiot. The cops were watching him. He was their prime suspect, and he knew that he needed to lay low. So that is precisely what he did. Chapter 4. The Undesirable Inconvenience It was almost a year before Bob needed to scratch his itch once more. He had had a steady stream of lodgers pass through his door over the preceding nine months, but it was 20-year-old Robert Sheldon who knocked on Bob Nadella's door on April 10th, 1985, that would become unlucky victim number two. Robert wasn't unfamiliar to Bob. He would pitch up at 4315 Charlotte Street from time to time, stay for a period, and then move on. But while Robert was fairly reliable when it came to paying the rent on time, Bob found him to be, in his words, an inconvenience. Unlike Jerry Howell, Bob didn't find Robert even remotely attractive. And perhaps under different circumstances, this would have spared Robert his life. But when Bob arrived back from work on April the 12th to find Robert pissed drunk, that was the deciding factor. Robert Sheldon would become the next specimen to be added to the Bedella collection. Bob drugged Robert with a powerful sedative before tying him to the same bed on the first floor where Jerry had met his end, and then the torture began. According to the extensive records Bob compiled, Robert was subjected to a smorgasbord of abuse, including drain cleaners swabbed and injected into his left eye, needles inserted under his fingernails, piano wire bound tightly around his wrists with the express intention of damaging the nerves to the hands, thereby rendering them useless, and filling his ears with sealant, or caulk, as it's called in America, to inhibit Robert's ability to hear. This abuse continued unabated for three days until, on April the 15th, a workman arrived for a prearranged appointment to conduct some roof repairs to the house. Bob knew that having a stranger discover a naked, restrained, visibly injured man in his home would almost certainly draw unwanted attention, 
and this would make Bob's life way more complicated than he needed it to be. As such, Bob concluded, Robert needed to die. Placing a plastic bag over Robert's head and fastening it around his neck with a length of rope, Robert quickly and quietly suffocated to death. Bob then hauled the body up to the top floor bathroom, where he would later dissect the corpse in the bathtub, and as before, he kept a souvenir. Robert's skull was buried in the garden. It would later be meticulously cleaned, then stored in a cupboard on the first floor. And just like that, Bob was on his way to becoming a serial killer. But he wasn't quite there yet. According to the book Serial Murder, by Ronald and Stephen Holmes, because clearly Mycroft and Sherlock were unavailable. A serial killer is typically a person who murders three or more persons, with the murders taking place over more than a month, and including a significant period of time between them. So yes, Bob was already well on his way to serial killer status. It wouldn't be long until he crossed that three-victim threshold. Chapter 5 Safer in the shed. I wasn't kidding about not waiting long. Two months later, Bob was ready to go, and as luck would have it, fate dropped his next victim right into his lap. Well, not literally, but close enough. On June the 22nd, 1985, a particularly violent storm blew through Kansas City, and Bob happened to be looking out of the window when he noticed movement at his garden shed. Thinking that something may have blown loose, he decided to brave the rain and batten down any hatches. But it wasn't an unlatched shutter or loose tarp. It was 20-year-old Mark Wallace. Mark had previously done yard work for Bob, and when he found himself out in the storm, he had known where he could find shelter. Bob Berdella's garden shed. Mistake number one. Bob invited Mark inside out of the elements, and Mark gladly accepted. The shed would have kept the rain off, but it was dank and draughty, and Mark was cold and wet. Inside the house would be far better. A hot shower would be good. Perhaps there were some dry clothes in the offing. Anything would be better than that damn shed. Mistake number two. He assumed all would be well, but you will not find a better example of assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups than this right here. Mark was a little on edge when they got inside and Bob asked if he would like something to calm him down, to relax him. Sadly, Mark said yes. Mistake number three. Mark's fuck-up trifecta. The shot that Bob gave him was chlorpromazine, an antipsychotic used in the treatment of bipolar, schizophrenia and acute psychosis. It is also advised to avoid mixing chlorpromazine and alcohol due to its sedating effects. But alcohol is precisely what Bob gave Mark to drink. Within 30 minutes, Mark was upstairs, naked, tied to the bed, and fully in Bob's clutches, where he would stay for almost a full 24 hours. In that time, he endured electric shocks administered through crocodile clips attached to his nipples, brutal torture, sexual assault, and even an experiment where hypodermic needles were stuck into various muscles on Mark's back. But Mark wasn't as resilient as his predecessors, at 7pm on June the 23rd, just one hour after the needle experiment, Bob noted in his logs that Mark Wallace had died from a combination of, quote, the drugs, the gag, and the lack of oxygen. 
Again, the body was dismembered and disposed of. But Bob would soon be back on the prowl, this time with intent. Chapter 6 Savage Escalation With three kills under his belt, Robert Andrew Budella Jr. was officially a serial killer, but we'll probably never know whether or not it was his becoming aware of his newly established serial killer status that inspired him to up his game. His modus operandi remained largely the same, but the brutality he inflicted on his victims escalated markedly. And victim number four was the first one that he chose specifically with capture and torture in mind. There are conflicting reports on how James Ferris came to find himself in Bob's clutches. Some claim that James called Bob asking about a room to rent. Others say that James and Bob met at a gay bar in Kansas City. Either way, on September 26, 1985, James found himself at 4315 Charlotte Street. He was given something to eat, and then the fun began. The food had been drugged with tranquilizers, crushed up into the meal, and in short order, James was upstairs and tied to the bed. For 27 hours, James endured near-constant torture. He was repeatedly electrocuted with 7,700 volts administered to the shoulders and testicles, sometimes for up to five minutes at a time. Acupuncture was performed on his neck and genitals using hypodermic needles, and drugs were injected into various locations on his body. The whole ordeal the various heinous acts to which James was being subjected was meticulously documented by Bob, give or take a few instances where Bob was certain that James wouldn't be able to endure much more, and so stopped thinking he was about to die. James became progressively more delirious, and Bob noted in his logs that James was soon, quote, unable to sit up for more than 10 to 15 seconds, end quote. This was followed by an injury reading, quote, very delayed breathing, End quote. And finally, the number 86, which was a slang term used in the 80s that meant to throw out or stop the project. It is widely believed that the meaning here was that James Ferris was no longer among the living. Bob lugged the body down to the basement, where it too was dismembered and disposed of. His trophy this time was James's wallet and driver's license. Chapter 7 Sepsis Rising It would be a good eight months before Bob's itch needed another scratch. And again, it was someone he knew. Todd Stoops was a 23-year-old drug-dependent male prostitute who had, on two previous occasions, along with his wife, lodged with Bob briefly in 1984. But after they moved out the second time, Bob hadn't seen them again until he bumped into Todd in Liberty Memorial Park on June the 17th, 1986. Todd was still hustling and still getting high, and he approached Bob, asking for $13, around $35 or 650 rand a day, with which he intended to score more drugs. Bob agreed to give him the money, in exchange for sex, of course, and offered him a free meal, and we already know how well that worked out for James. Bob would later admit that he found Todd particularly appealing, and he wanted him as a compliant sex slave, which may explain why he took his time with him. He most probably wanted to break Todd's spirit, where Todd would be his, much like the storyline of The Collector. 
Over the course of two weeks, the violence Bob inflicted on the younger man intensified as he gradually ramped up the terror to reinforce the sense of helplessness. He subjected Todd to electric shocks through his closed eyelids to see if he could blind him. He injected drain cleaner into his larynx to stop him from screaming. And in the second week, he fisted Todd so violently that he ruptured Todd's anal wall, resulting in bleeding and discharge. If you don't know what fisting is, do not Google it. Just take comfort in your blissful ignorance and let's keep going. By the end, Todd was indeed broken. In Todd's final days, attempting to feed him ice cream and soup were in vain because according to Bob's notes, Todd was unable to keep anything down. And on his final day on earth, he was too weak to even breathe in a sitting position. Todd Stoops died on July the 1st, 1986. It would later be ruled that Todd had died as a result of septic shock caused by the ruptured anal wall. As horrendous as Todd's treatment had been, the worst was yet to come. If you're still here, well fucking done. I wanted to nope the fuck out of this script about a thousand words back. But let's just get through this, and if we can go and hug our children or partners and try to forget for a moment that evil truly exists. Chapter 8 Bob's Johnson Around April 1987, Bob was working his store when an attractive young man stepped inside and they got to chatting. His name was Larry Wayne Pearson. He was 20 years old, and ever since he was a child, he had had a fascination with all things to do with witchcraft and wizardry. So to him, Bob's Bizarre Bazaar was a veritable paradise. Over the subsequent months, the two became casual friends, and for a time, Larry even stayed with Bob, and being short of cash, would help out around the house in lieu of rent. Initially, Bob had no desire to add Larry to his collection. But this all changed on June the 23rd, when Larry called Bob, asking him to bail him out of jail. Afterwards, the two men were shooting the shit, and Larry mentioned to Bob, in a light-hearted tone, that he would occasionally rob gay men in Wichita, Kansas. And just like that, Bob had his latest target. As the evening progressed, Bob made it his mission to get Larry blind drunk. He then dosed Larry up with chlorpromazine and moved him to the play area he had prepared earlier. However, unlike with his previous victims, Larry was moved downstairs into the basement, not upstairs into the bedroom. There, Bob bound Larry's hands above his head, tied the restraints to a brick column, and then immediately injected drain cleaner into Larry's throat to prevent him from being able to scream. If nothing else, Bob was certainly honing his skills with each subsequent victim, learning from past mistakes. Lastly, Bob brought down the transformer with which he intended to administer his fucked-up version of electroshock therapy. After five days of torture, where Larry was subjected to repeated electrocutions and several of his bones in his hands were broken with an iron rod, Larry became submissive and even cooperative, and Bob decided that Larry had earned Bob's trust enough that they could continue his sexual and physical abuse in a more comfortable setting. So as a reward, Larry was moved upstairs to the bedroom, where Bob told him that if he kept up his cooperation, he wouldn't be subjected to the same level of pain and trauma as he had to endure down in the basement. 
For the remainder of his confinement, Larry did everything he could not to piss off Bob, including training himself to sleep perfectly still, so that he wasn't hauled back down to the basement. But by week six, early August, he couldn't take it anymore, and a perfect opportunity to make his dissatisfaction known presented itself. Now, I'm no criminal mastermind, but surely it is common sense that sticking your penis into the mouth of someone you are holding against their will is a bad idea. Clearly, Bob never got that memo because that's exactly what he did. And it went as spectacularly as one would expect. Larry sunk his teeth so deep into old Bob's Johnson that Bob needed medical treatment. After chomping down on Bob's pecker, Larry yelled that he could no longer tolerate the abuse, and Bob responded by bludgeoning him unconscious with a tree limb, which seems like an odd thing to have lying around your average city dwelling. But that's what it said in the press. Bob then placed the bag over Larry's head, secured it with a ligature, and drove his mangled member to the emergency room. In yet another impressive display of criminal genius, at the hospital, Bob was recorded in the medical report as saying words to the effect of Larry Pearson tried to bite my dick off. Because that's not going to come back to haunt him anytime soon. But with his wiener wrapped up and a get well kiss planted squarely on his forehead, Bob was sent home to go and deal with the mess he had made at 4315 Charlotte Street. He hauled Larry's body back to the basement where it was dismembered and the body parts disposed of, save for his head. Yet another souvenir, wrapped in plastic, initially stored in Bob's freezer, but later moved outside and buried in the garden, at which point Robert Sheldon's skull was brought back in and prepared for storage in the closet. Chapter 9. The Matchbook On March the 29th, 1988, Bob approached Christopher Bryson, a male prostitute, inquiring about his services. Yeah, I know he will later tell the cops that he was hitchhiking, but this was America in the 80s. Do you really blame him? Anyway, Christopher informed Bob of his rates and what that would get him for his money, and a deal was struck. The two then set off for 4315 Charlotte Street. On arrival, Christopher was told to wait in the living room, while Bob went off to elsewhere in the house. Christopher spent the next few minutes browsing the curiosities decorating the room, and then suddenly, his world went dark. When he came to, Christopher's head was still swimming, and the injury inflicted to the back of his head with the iron rod Bob had used to bludgeon him throbbed. He quickly realised that he was tied to a bed, and then he noticed Bob standing over him. Repeatedly, his eyes were swabbed with ammonia, and then he heard Bob's voice. The only things you need to think about are you, me, and this house. Then the torture began. The same torture Bob's other victims had been subjected to. Electric shocks, beatings, broken bones, physical assault, rape, sexual assault, sodomy with foreign objects, and injecting drain cleaner into his throat to limit his ability to speak properly. And Bob even added to his repertoire, like the aforementioned swabbing of Larry's eyes with ammonia. Bob had been honing his skills for almost four years, and Christopher got to experience this extensive expertise firsthand. Christopher would later recall Bob saying, 
You did not choose to be here, but you are. For you to survive being here, and for you to, you know, make it. It could either be rough, or it could be easy. If I grow to like you, and to trust you, then I could do special things for you, such as buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work, and so forth. Don't try to fight me, or you'll just get more of what you had earlier. You see, what you got is nothing compared to what you can have. The abuse continued for a number of days, during which Christopher lost his concept of time. The fear Bob instilled in him convinced him that he was not going to survive. Until one day, Bob came into the room and sat on the bed. In a calm, soothing voice, Bob explained that Christopher had indeed begun to earn Bob's trust, and while Bob was willing to discuss aspects of the physical abuse and torture Christopher was receiving, Bob was unwilling to negotiate on the sexual abuse. For a fleeting moment, Christopher thought he might actually get out of this alive. And then Bob issued a chilling warning. I've gotten this far with other people before, and they are dead now because of mistakes they made. By day three, Christopher was able to convince Bob to tie his hands in front of him during the day, after Bob had had his fun sexually abusing him, because Christopher claimed having his arms tied above his head to the bed was restricting his circulation. So instead, he was attached to the bed with a cord attached to a dog collar placed around his neck, and his ankles attached to the bedposts at the foot of the bed. He was also able to persuade Bob to leave the TV on with the remote between his legs whenever Bob was out of the room. Throughout his entire incarceration, Christopher was constantly on the lookout for an opportunity for escape, and that opportunity presented itself on day four. On the morning of April the 2nd, 1988, Bob came into the room, had his fun, repositioned Christopher's restraints, and then, after turning on the TV and tossing the remote control onto the bed between Christopher's knees, he left the house and made his way to Westport, confident in the knowledge that when he got home, he'd be able to pick up Christopher's abuse where he'd left off. But Christopher had spotted something. Something that gave him hope that today was the day. A book of matches had been abandoned on the bed. And by his estimation, it looked to be within reach. With Bob out of the house, Christopher put his plan into action. Stretching out as far as he could, ignoring the pain of his injuries, he eventually managed to claw the matchbook closer. He burnt through his restraints and then tried the bedroom door. Locked. The only way out of the room was through the window but a three or four meter drop awaited him on the other side. It was a drop he was willing to brave. Naked, save for the dog collar, he jumped from the window. As he landed, he heard a cracking sound coming from his foot and a jolt of pain shot up his leg. But it wasn't the first broken bone he had suffered during his time inside that house, and he began hobbling as quickly as his injuries would allow towards the only person he could see, the parking meter attendant working across the street. And he kept repeating the phrase, Call the police! Right, so we're back where we started. We're six murders down, and victim number seven is being treated in hospital. Police are trying to get a search warrant, and 4315 Charlotte Street is under surveillance. Who's hungry? Ooh, I've been dying to try this place. Oh my god, me too. I've heard such good things about it. Welcome to the Crime Diner. I'm Cindy. I'll be cooking for you this evening. Here are your menus. 
Oh, what are you thinking about getting? I don't know. Murder with a side of cannibalism? What about you? Ooh, that sounds good. I'm torn between historical mayhem and the social injustice, maybe? Oh. I just want to let you know that each episode comes with dinner, dessert, and a specialty drink chosen by yours truly. Wine Dine and Storytime has had a makeover, and we invite you to slide into the booth with us at the Crime Diner, where each week we will discuss a crime over dinner, drinks, and dessert. See you there! Chapter 10. An Eerie Blue Glow. And we're back! Right, so with dinner now done and our glasses hopefully recharged with something a little stronger than coffee, because I am, we're back where we started. Jerry Howell, age 19, Robert Sheldon, age 20, Mark Wallace, also age 20, James Ferris, age 25, Todd Stoops, age 23, and Larry Wayne Pearson, again age 20, are dead. Christopher Bryson, age 22, is in hospital but he is alive and able to tell his story. The story he tells beggars belief, but there is something I've left out. While being questioned, Christopher revealed that during his captivity, Bob had shown him Polaroid photographs of men who appeared to be dead. And Bob claimed that these men were his previous victims. Christopher related Bob's words to him about him never being allowed to leave, and should he not simply accept his fate, his torture will be ramped up, or he may even end up like the other men in those photographs. Essentially, behave or die. Police waited outside 4315 Charlotte Street for Bob to come home, and as soon as he pulled into the driveway, officers approached him. He was arrested for sexual assault, but when police asked him to consent to a voluntary search of his home, Bob refused, and so a call was made. Within the hour, a search warrant was granted to search Bob's property, and the full extent of this house of horrors was laid bare. In the room that Christopher had obviously been held in, investigators found a bed with burnt ropes attached to the, the bedposts, and a transformer with wires leading to the bed plugged into a wall, all of this corroborating Christopher's story. Near the bed was a metal tray on which there were syringes, a variety of small vials presumably containing an assortment of intravenous prescription medication, cotton swabs, and little eyedrop bottles. Other items lay strewn about, including a metal pipe, ropes of varying lengths, and a collection of leather belts. On closer inspection of the bed, investigators noticed that there was significant wear to the four bedposts, suggesting that Christopher had not been the first person to be restrained there, and those that had come before him had also likely struggled to get free. As the police investigators worked their way through the house, they uncovered and seized other evidence. For instance, they found a human skull in a closet in one of the rooms. They found several human vertebrae with hacksaw and knife markings scored into them in a hallway. And they also found two envelopes containing human teeth. Buried in the backyard, they discovered a partially decomposed human head, and down in the basement, a hacksaw, a mitre saw, and a chainsaw appeared to be stained with blood, and also contained what looked like flesh and pubic hair. The forensics team 
sprayed the basement down with luminol, a chemical that reveals traces of blood that may be invisible to the naked eye when shone under UV light. And then they turned the UV light on. The entire room lit up in an eerie blue glow. Much blood had been spilt here. In addition, police discovered 334 Polaroid and 34 snapshot images showing Christopher and as many as 20 other men, some alive, some dead, and some of the proceeds of being tortured. They also found various restraints, sexual devices, poor magazines, hypodermic needles, and a book on different narcotics. They found newspaper clippings from the Kansas City Star reporting on the disappearance of Jerry Howell and a wallet containing a driver's license belonging to James Ferris. The most damning evidence, however, was a stenographer's pad laying out in graphic detail all of the fucked up shit Bob Berdella had gotten up to over the past four years. The search of Bob's house hadn't even wrapped up yet and a special task force comprising of 11 detectives and one sergeant had been assembled with the sole purpose of pulling Bob's life apart. The Kansas City Police Department needed to know everything there was to know about this man and there was a shitload to be known. They looked into his history and discovered that he was well known in hustler circles as one to avoid. Not only did he have a reputation for drugging and torturing his rent boys, but word had gotten around that he had most likely been the last person to see two of their associates alive, James Ferris and Jerry Howell, two men whose possessions had turned up in the search at 4315 Charlotte Street. The background check also revealed that Bob had indeed been questioned in relation to the disappearance of both these men, but he denied all knowledge of their whereabouts. For a time, he had even been considered their prime suspect and was placed under surveillance because after giving his initial statement, he refused further questioning, at least not without a lawyer present. Eventually, however, Bob got his lawyer to threaten the cops with a harassment lawsuit unless they left him alone. The surveillance was called off, the questioning stopped. However, this time around, they had hard evidence, personal belongings and photographs. Fortunately, Bob had been rather inconsiderate in neglecting to label the pictures with the names of his victims who were featured. In many of the images, though, parts of the photographer's body were visible, and so on April the 13th, Bob was ordered to strip naked and recreate the poses in the shots so that investigators could compare them to the original photos. When the search of his home was concluded, police informed Bob of their discoveries and tried to conduct their first interview with him. Bob immediately invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, his right to remain silent. Meanwhile, the daunting task of identification got underway, and a team of detectives had to try and figure out who the faces in the photos and the names in the torture logs belonged to. They also needed to establish what the photos actually depicted and whether the men being photographed were dead or alive. It was an unenviable task because many of the images had been taken after death, but the hardest part was yet to come. And soon enough, that time came. Friends and family needed to positively identify their loved ones. A woman arrived visibly distraught and things went downhill for her from there when she positively identified a man in some of the images as her husband, James Ferris. The picture of a young man hanging upside down in Bob's basement 
was identified by his father, Paul, as Jerry Howell. One of the men was identified through the torture logs as Freddie Kellogg, who had boarded on and off with Bob since the early 80s. He had been one of many lodgers over the years, and he was able to give a first-hand account of what life was like for Bob's young houseguests. According to Freddie, Bob would often ply his lodgers with drugs, usually intravenously, and then have sex with them, with or without their consent. He also informed investigators that a condition of his lodging was that he had to be the bait. Should Bob find a particularly young man attractive, it was Freddie's job to invite him to one of Bob's house parties, where Bob would then drug the man. Getting the boy high was Bob's way of getting leverage over him. Should the boy threaten to go to the police, Bob would then use the drug use as blackmail. Even so, many of the addicts and prostitutes would refuse to engage with Bob in any way because of the rumours about him having something to do with Jerry's disappearance. Freddie had proven to be a wealth of information, but he wasn't done yet. When investigators sat him down in front of Bob's photo collection, he was able to give them three more names. Todd Stopes, Robert Sheldon, Larry Wayne Pearson. This was the breakthrough the cops needed, and they jumped onto these leads. First, they looked into Larry Wayne Pearson, and discovered that in June 1987, Bob had paid a $30 fee to secure bail for Larry. But almost instantly, the trail for Larry went cold. Until August of that year, where Bob then filed an assault report against a Larry Pearson, stating that Larry had bitten into his penis while the two were engaged in oral sex, and it was severe enough to inflict lacerations. Like I said, that sure shit was never going to come back to haunt him. Anywho, then they looked into the next name on the list, Robert Sheldon. In April 1985, he'd been working at a Kansas City manufacturing plant, and his employers confirmed that he had always been reliable. But one day he just never pitched for work. It seemed a little strange, but blue-collar workers come and go. Sometimes they quit, other times they simply take off, especially after payday. April the 12th, 1985, was a Friday. And you will recall that on that day, Bob came home to find Robert pissed drunk, which is what made up Bob's mind to take Robert captive. Robert probably picked up his pay packet and headed to the local liquor store to buy booze. Not that investigators knew it yet, but it was probably the worst decision Robert would ever make in his life, and he wouldn't have much opportunity to make many more after that. Things just went from bad to worse for Bob throughout the investigation. When investigators obtained a court order to get a handwriting sample with which they could confirm that Bob had been the one to create the torture logs, he refused to consent. Which I find amazing. From what Freddie told investigators, Bob wasn't too bothered about consent when the shoe was on the other foot. Funny that. Be that as it may, however, his refusal got him six months in jail for contempt of court. The prosecution of Bob Bedella started off with him being charged with one count of felonious restraint, one count of assault, and seven counts of forcible sodomy. He was assigned a public defender and held in protective custody on $500,000 bail, which is around one and a quarter million dollars or 22 and a half million rand today. But the house of cards that Bob built was collapsing around him. On April the 27th, 1988, a photo array of seven as yet unidentified men was released to the media in the hopes that the public may be able to assist in the investigation. 
and the following day, investigators got two pieces of good news. Firstly, they were able, via subpoena, to obtain dental x-rays from the University of Kansas Medical Center, and these were compared against the teeth found in the closet in Bob's home. They got a match. Robert Sheldon had been identified. Secondly, two different calls from two different men came into the Kansas City Police Department claiming to be able to identify one of the men in the photo array that went out the day before. They said his name was Mark Wallace, and he had gone to the same high school as both of them. Detectives then contacted Mark's sister, who said she hadn't heard from her brother since mid-1985. A third bit of good news soon followed when photograph D was identified as Larry Wayne Pearson. Having previously been arrested, his dental records were also on file. These were obtained, and it was discovered that the skull found in the backyard belonged to Larry Pearson. Bob was formally charged with the murder by dismemberment of Larry Wayne Pearson on May the 12th, 1988. Chapter 11. Bob's Days in Court. On July the 22nd, 1988, Bob was indicted for the murder of Larry Wayne Pearson, and the next month, he pleaded guilty to first-degree murder in the Jackson County Court. It came as a complete surprise to both the judge and the prosecutors, but they accepted the plea, saying later that it was, quote, in the best interest of our client, the people of the state of Missouri, end quote. However, on acceptance of the plea, Judge Elvin C. Randall insisted that Bob confess under oath to Larry's death. Bob described the murder as I put a plastic bag over his head and tied it with rope and allowed him to suffocate. When asked by his attorney whether the act was committed deliberately and with malice aforethought, he simply replied, yes. He was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole and was transferred to the Missouri State Penitentiary, but had to be moved temporarily to Potosi Correctional Center because his safety at the state prison could not be guaranteed. On August the 24th, he was back in court, this time for the assault on Christopher Bryson. As part of a plea agreement, six of the seven counts of sodomy and the assault charge were dropped. But he pleaded guilty to the charges of forcible sodomy, for which he was sentenced another life sentence without parole, and felonious restraint, for which he got an additional seven years. Less than a month later, on September the 13th, Bob pleaded not guilty to the remaining five murder charges. However, he ultimately agreed to a plea deal in which he would reveal in graphic detail the minutiae of the murders, including the indignities he had inflicted on his victims, the manners of their deaths, and the methods used to dispose of the bodies. In exchange, the prosecution would take the death penalty off the table. Between December the 13th and December the 15th, 1988, Bob Bedello revealed all, and a formal hearing was held on December the 19th, where he waived his rights to be tried on the outstanding charges, which had been revised to first-degree murder for Robert Sheldon, and second-degree murder for Jerry Howell, Mark Wallace, James Ferris, and Todd Stoops. He pleaded guilty before Judge Robert Myers, in a closed hearing with only family of the victims and news reporters in attendance and Judge Myers sentenced him to a further five life sentences to be served concurrently, but without parole, 
based on the sole murder one conviction. Chapter 12. Forgive me, Your Honor, for I have sinned. Let's jump back a bit. Bob confessed, but what exactly did he confess to? As a Catholic, he would have been familiar with the concept of confession, where you sit in a little box and tell a dude an address on the other side of a wooden lattice, the many ways you have fallen from grace. Then you wander off, do your assigned penance, and go about your week, being the same dodgy prick you've always been. But this was a courtroom, and his penance needed to be a lot more life-altering than muttering a few Hail Marys, Our Fathers, and Glory Bees, and then carrying on business as usual. He needed to satisfy the court that A, he was conscious of his crimes, B, he understood the seriousness of his actions, and C, he accepted the severity of his punishment. He was going to be behind bars, and rightly so, for a long, long time. But first, he needed to come clean. So, over the course of three days in December 1988, he dished the details. He spoke of his fascination with the movie The Collector, that he'd watched as a teen, and how it had made a lasting impact. According to Bob, his first murder left him shocked and disgusted, but the movie resurfaced in his mind and became a significant, motivating psychological force in his later killings. His victims ceased to be human in his eyes once they were in his clutches, describing it thusly on the first day of his testimony. These were not people that I thought of. Once I had them bound and was using them, they became something other than people to me. I never thought it out to the level of, what if one of these bodies ever gets loose? He went on to explain the torture logs, clarifying some of the abbreviations and shorthand that he'd used when writing entries. CP, for instance, referred to his intravenous administration of chlorpromazine, which he used to subdue his victims in order to restrain them. DC referred to his use of drain cleaner, either swabbed into the eyes or injected into his victim's vocal cords. EK or EKG were used to indicate that he had administered electric shocks to his victims. These abbreviations were often paired with the anatomical location of where the abuse or torture was meted out. An example of this was when he injected 2.5 cubic centimeters or cc's of the animal tranquilizer ketamine into James Ferris's neck and shoulder. He recorded this as 2.5 ket nk plus shoulder. Other entries were written in simple English, such as very delayed breathing, snoring, or gag loose, no resist in retai, all very self-explanatory. These logs were very helpful to investigators in determining what may have caused or at least contributed to the deaths of his victims. For example, based on his notes, a toxicology specialist consulted by investigators was able to testify that the accumulated amount of chlorpromazine injected into Robert Sheldon's system would have likely been toxic. The questioning also covered the assortment of human remains discovered on Bob's property. He explained that he had first buried Robert Sheldon's skull out in the backyard to aid in skeletonization. After he killed Larry, he dug up Robert's skull, replaced it with Larry's, and took Robert's skull inside, where he cleaned off the dirt and whatever biological material remained, then placed it in the closet, in what he referred to as my gallery area. He would later remove the teeth from the skull and store them in envelopes 
which he then stowed in the same place. When asked, he stated that his intention was to do exactly the same thing with Larry Pearson's skull once it had skeletonized sufficiently, although he insisted that there was no rational or sinister reason for him doing this. He also denied the rumours in the media that he had ever sold any of his victims' body parts in his flea market stall, although this was heavily suggested in the 2009 biopic. He also denied that it was some sort of satanic ritual. On the second day of testimony, he was asked to name his victims, which he did. He explained that, with the exception of Mark Wallace, who was an opportunistic seizure after he discovered Mark sheltering from a storm in his shed, the other five victims were all seized as a result of his frustration at being unable to steer them away from what he deemed abhorrent lifestyles. He was also able to go through each of his victims and describe in graphic detail the various acts of sexual, physical and emotional abuse he had inflicted on them. But he made it clear that he hadn't carried out these heinous acts for his enjoyment, but rather for his physical and mental satisfaction. Perhaps you want to help me out here because, well, semantics. I'm struggling to see the difference here. To me, in this context, the only difference between enjoyment and satisfaction is the spelling. According to Bob, there wasn't much in the line of pre-planning when it came to what he intended to do with his victims. His approach basically boiled down to, quote, capturing them first and what developed, developed, end quote. But he made sure that he would regularly administer nutrients and antibiotics intravenously if necessary to prevent malnutrition or infection as his abuse and torture escalated. All in all, Bob admitted to experimenting with a variety of torture methods, including administering high-voltage electric shocks, starvation, applying alkali-based detergents to their throats, vocal cords, or eyes, bludgeoning their hands in an attempt to render these body parts unusable, and inserting needles under their fingernails. He also admitted to ramping up the level of abuse with each successive victim, and that he considered his collection of Polaroid images to be a, quote, trophy or record of the event, end quote. Lastly, despite extensive police searches for his victims' remains, his tactic of literally throwing the body parts out with the trash to be carried off to landfill sites unknown effectively ensured that their bodies would never be recovered. Chapter 13 The Monster Caged Bob Budilla was incarcerated at the Missouri State Penitentiary for the duration of his sentence. Shortly after he started serving his time, he met Reverend Roger Coleman, who had tried to become a counsellor of sorts. But I'm not sure Bob wanted counsel. I'm of the opinion that Bob was hoping to find in the Rev a sympathetic ear, someone he could bitch to in the hopes that the Rev would take up his complaints with the prison guards and warden and make his incarceration more comfortable. Bob would often complain in letters to the Rev that despite prison officials knowing about his high blood pressure, they were not providing him with his prescribed heart medication. He would also frequently lodge formal complaints with prison officials about the conditions at the prison, but whether these complaints held any merit is questionable. While in prison, Bob was diagnosed with a depressive personality disorder, but he was also diagnosed as sexual sadist, who derived extreme sexual exhilaration from the humiliation, pain, and torture he inflicted on his victims. On January the 2nd, 1989, 
KCPT, a local television station, aired an interview with Bob where he tried to restore his image as a sensitive person who had made mistakes. In the interview, he claimed that he was demonized in the media, and he tried to lay the blame for his crimes at the feet of the police, saying it was their ineptitude in the wake of his first murder that allowed him to commit the other five. Highlights of this interview are available on YouTube, and there is a link in the description. At no point during the years of his incarceration did Bob ever express any sort of remorse for his crimes, despite claiming to be remorseful to journalists he contacted over the years. He repeatedly said that he had not thought of his victims as human, and this seemingly never changed, even after his conviction, because in one interview he gave in 1992, he referred to his victims as play toys. On October 8, 1992, Bob complained of chest pains and he was moved to the prison infirmary. He was hooked up to an EKG machine and it was determined that his heart was unstable. An ambulance was called and he was transferred to a hospital in Columbia, Missouri, where at 3.55, Robert Andrew Bodella Jr. was pronounced dead of a heart attack. When informed of Bob's death, Judge Elvin Randall, who had presided over Bob's trial for Larry Wayne Pearson's murder, summed it up quite succinctly. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Epilogue. The resurrection of Bob's Bizarre Bizarre. While Bob's trial was still ongoing, his legal fees were beginning to mount. And in November 1988, four separate auctions were held where a vast collection of artifacts and furniture that had been confiscated from Bob's home went under the hammer. The auctions were a roaring success, attracting telephone bids from across the country. Despite many of the items up for sale going for less than expected, the first of the four auctions alone managed to raise more than $60,000, around $151,000 or 2.7 million rand a day. I was unable to find out how much they made of all four auctions, but in my searching, I came across something else. A Facebook page titled, Bob's Bizarre Bizarre. It was launched on October the 10th, 2016, ostensibly by Bob's brother and nephew. And one of the first posts on that page reads, We're really excited to announce that after nearly 30 years after being closed, BBB's is reopening in its original location at Westport Flea Market Bar and Grill. Despite the horrible things that our uncle and brother did, we have decided to not let it affect our family business any longer. We hope to embrace the city that we love so dearly once again. See you at the grand opening, October 29th. (laughs) As you can imagine, it was met with some pushback. But it would seem that this may well have been the desired response, because even the page description for Bob's Bizarre Bizarre was in decidedly poor taste. Check out the killer selection of new, used, and vintage ethnological curiosities from the world's far corners. Killer selection? Eek. And the poor taste didn't stop there. Baseball jerseys with the store's name, address, and slogan were captioned, Throwback baseball jerseys coming soon. The prices will captivate you, so to speak. Wow. But yeah, back to the pushback. To say the announcement went down like a cup of chilled vomit would be the understatement of the fucking millennium. One commenter wrote, 
Same name, same location. Are you out of your mind? You must be as sick as he was to think that this is okay. There were many who claimed that it was a hoax, and even Westport flea market owner Joe Zwillenberg weighed in saying that under no circumstances would they allow anybody to reopen Bob's store in the same location. Besides, he said, it wasn't even possible because the store was not available. It had been occupied by a different seller since 1990, and there were no plans for that shop to move or close. He also claimed that when the 2009 biopic came out, the makers wanted to hold the premiere at Westport, but they were turned down out of respect for the victims because, quote, it's not something you need to celebrate, end quote. Three days later, a comment by the page was posted. We've decided to cancel the event and not reopen. Due to the negative feedback and lies told by the media, we have been threatened and cursed, all for wanting to reopen the family business. Anyone notice how much time they spent talking about the man himself? They glorified him, not us. You guys brought this into the media, not us. We politely, quietly tried to re-enter the community and were met by bullies. As soon as we figure out how to cancel this event, we will make the page a memory page about the store and sell online only and donate any profits to a charity of popular vote. We were not trying to make money. We have enough of that. Read the history and follow the chain. We were only trying to clear out our other uncle's backstock of items, some once owned by the other evil uncle himself. Please recommend to us a charity you would like proceeds to go to. Thank you and have a good day. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Personally, as you can tell, I find this terribly amusing. Yes, it was absolutely in poor taste. And if it was genuine, they deserved all the backlash they got. But my research wasn't done. I decided to do one final search. And what I turned up cast doubt on the veracity of the claim that Bob's brother and nephew were behind the Facebook page. On February the 17th, 2007, the following appeared in the Las Vegas Review Journal. Daniel L. Berdella Sr., 50, of Las Vegas, died February 14, 2007. He was a floor supervisor and served in the U.S. Air Force. He is survived by his wife, Bernadette, mother, Mary Hallaby, sons, Michael and Timothy Ridenour, and Daniel, and daughters, Jennifer Ashcraft and Erica Kozub. Memorial service at 1 p.m., Sunday, February 18th, at Affordable Cremation and Burial Service, 2457 North Decatur Boulevard. Now, obviously, the brother and nephew could have been from Mary's second marriage. But I find it hard to believe that a family with that kind of skeleton in its closet would want to draw attention to themselves. Unless, like that commenter suggested, they are indeed as sick as Bob was. Or maybe they're decent people, just trying to raise money for charity. But surely another auction could do that just as well, if not maybe even better. There have been a few posts on the page since the failed reopening with the last post going out on April the 20th, 2022. But I think we can safely say that Kansas City won't stand idly by should anybody try to raise Bob's Bizarre Bazaar from the dead. Thank you for coming along on our journey into the life and crimes of Bob Berdella. It was a rough one, even for me, and I did try and temper that intensity with a bit of humour. 
but I have a really dark sense of humor, so I can find humor in most things. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving us a review. Five stars would be awesome, unless of course you thought it sucked. In which case, go with your gut, I guess. <laughs> and don't forget to subscribe, that way you can get notified when we release new episodes. If you would like to leave us a voice message that could be incorporated into a future episode, head over to our page at Anchor FM, which is Anchor FM forward slash ACMQ podcast, and hit the send message button. I'd love to hear from you. You can find ACMQ on Facebook and Twitter, ACMQ podcast, or on Instagram at ACMQ pod. And if you want to support the show, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash ACMQ podcast. You'll find links to all of this down in the description. But that's all for today. Join me next time for another case that definitely qualifies as a crime most queer. This has been another episode of A Crime Most Queer, an LGBTQ true crime podcast based in Johannesburg, South Africa, presented by VA Amazing Productions. Today's episode was written by NJ Hawkeby with editorial oversight by Anna Seitz. Audio production was done by NJ Hawkeby, and the episode was executive produced by Anna Seitz. While the story is based on actual events, some situations, conversations, and characterizations may have been fictionalized or invented for purposes of dramatization, based on court documents and press reports from the time. With respect to such fictionalizations, any similarity to the actual character or history of any person, living or dead, is purely for dramatic purposes. Some names may have been changed to protect the identity of those involved.